This is John Snyder, your host of The Walk. With over 20 years as a pediatric nurse practitioner, our guest today comes to us with high credentials and an equally high commitment to the welfare of children and teens. She holds a doctor of nursing practice and is an advanced practice registered nurse with a heart for vulnerable children and anti-trafficking. A clinical professor at Baylor University School of Nursing, wife of a rocket scientist and a mom of four teens, she is here to talk about her new book, Behind Closed Doors, a guide to help parents and teens navigate through life's toughest issues. Dr. Jessica Peck has a lot to say about teens and their parents facing a tsunami of physical, mental, and emotional health problems with practical advice on how to create the kind of healthy, happy family lives we all seek. It is a great privilege to speak with her today on The Walk. Sure, I'd love to share uh, my testimony, my story. I was fortunate to come to know Jesus at a very young age. I was raised in a Christian home and had a a legacy of faith and always uh, went to church and and knew the Lord. And, uh, you know, as I progressed, I became a nurse. I was the first woman in my family to get a university degree. Mm -hmm. And that was a really big adventure for me. And I, you know, got married to a great Christian guy and had four kids and always just felt like I was a nurse who was also a Christian. And as I started to do my doctoral degree, actually, a series of events started to put me in the realm of professional nursing organizations. And I started traveling for the first time by myself and really kind of doing things I never saw myself doing. And one day I was at the Capitol. This was a a little more than a decade ago at the United States Capitol and was very nervous about the assignment that I had been given to meet with my senator. And I did it. And as I walked out, I was feeling kind of elated, like, oh, I did it. I never thought that I would be here. And I just really felt the Lord just talk to me and just say, I am with you. And is that enough? And from that moment, I really gave every element of my life to the Lord and felt like I was a Christian who had a platform of nursing to share really the good news of of my faith. And so since then, I've really been just uh, having a big adventure that God has designed for me. And that's really what led me to write Behind Closed Doors. Although I grew up in a family um, you know, that, that had a rich legacy of faith, uh, there were also issues and concerns there and broken relationships. And that's really where um, some of my personal story and testimony comes, how God has redeemed those things and how mm. He has used those in my life for His good and for His glory, knowing that He's a God of restoration, a God that makes beauty from ashes, and a God that uses our um, our suffering for uh, to help others. And so Mm -hmm. that's how I basically got to where I am. Okay. That's a good story. Um, So you wrote Behind Closed Doors. What was the the trigger that uh, put that thought in your mind that you wanted to write this book? Yes, it it was, actually. Um, So when I started, uh, you know, really on my new nursing journey as a leader— uh, God brought into my life a actually an anti-trafficking leader who was who ran a community organization here where I live. And she asked me to help write continuing education for nurses, and my first response was actually absolutely not. Like, no, I don't know anything <laughs> about trafficking. That's not how this works. But really, once I discovered how pervasive it was and how much kids right here in my community and all over are 
are affected, I really started to um, to really work from that lens, and that was my primary area of leadership and scholarship. Mm-hmm. But what I found that parents really didn't think that that was a risk, and they didn't really want to talk about it because it's so dark and so scary. And it doesn't just happen overnight. You know, there's a common misperception that kids are kidnapped into trafficking, but that's just not how it happens. It happens way upstream looking at risk factors that we just never had to face growing up as parents. And so I was kind of operating in that lens at the same time that I had four teenagers of my own. My oldest daughter was 13. I thought, you know, I was, I knew how to deal with kids, but we started having repetitive conflict and kind of repeating some generational cycles. It ended up with me driving down the road and having an argument with her and her throwing a book at my head, you know, just shockingly and thinking I've got to do something different. And so I started my own kind of personal journey of looking at what, uh, what I needed to do to really to break generational trauma and to break Mm -hmm. generational patterns. Mm -hmm. So those two things, that personal and professional sphere were going on right as COVID hit. And I sat in my backyard and I saw the storm coming. I knew what was going to happen and the way that COVID and the social isolation was going to impact young people on how the things I was seeing them struggle with in my clinic that parents think, oh, not my kid. I mean, no parent ever wants to be in that point of crisis. I knew that this would get worse. So God just gave me an opportunity really to write this book. And I was sitting in my backyard with my journal and wrote out the whole outline in about an hour. And Hmm. now it's been two years later and it's finally going to come to parents. And I can't wait to give them some hope for healthy relationships with their teens. So God just put that in your mind, sounds like. Planted the thought in your mind, you wrote it out. And uh, that was it. That was it. I mean, really, that's how it happened. And people who write book proposals will tell me it takes years. But I think this is something (laughs) God had been writing on the canvas of my mind and the canvas of my life for a decade. So it was time. Time to give it birth. Yeah. Okay. Right. What's the one thing that you would like to see the reader take away from from this book when they finish? I want the reader who is a parent to know that there is hope for a healthy relationship with your teen, that they teens do really, really care what their parents think of them. They do really want to talk with their parents. They do want to have that relationship. And as parents, we have the incredible privilege of choosing whether the greatest influence in our life is going to be, you know, positive. It it can be positive and we can do that. There is hope for this. A lot of times I meet parents of teens who just feel hopeless in a hopeless situation or in a challenging situation and they feel like a failure as a parent, but we are imperfect children with a perfect father and, and then we're imperfect parents to imperfect children. So they're going to mess up. But there is grace and uh, forgiveness and restoration. Well, there's uh, plenty to talk about there, too. Um, you, you've given me some uh, statistics here. I'm going to read just a few of them, if you don't mind. Um, sure. It's talking about um, recent studies indicate that approximately one in five teens between the ages of 12 and 18 suffer from at least one diagnosable mental health disorder. That's pretty shocking in itself. Um, And then uh, cases of major depression among teens ages 16 and 17 rose by an overwhelming 69%. Mm -hmm. Um, Feelings of anxiety and hopelessness increased by 71% among people ages 17 to 25, which is uh, seemingly the uh, university years. 
One out of five girls ages 12 to 17 had experienced major depression within the last year. And one more, between 2008 and 17, the suicide rate among teens ages 18 to 19 increased by 56%. Now, these are all pretty shocking things. Uh, I, I'm not, I'm not surprised because I've I've read s- similar things over the last few years, and um, it just makes you wonder what what happened between. I'm thinking of my own generation. What happened between mine and the current one, uh, where we had problems, of course, they were all normal problems, but they didn't they didn't seem anywhere near like these. Uh, so, let's talk a few minutes about that. Uh, are these I'm sure you've done a lot more studies uh, on this. Uh, is this a recent trend, and how far back does the history of teens and troubles go to produce these statistics? Well, teens have always the teenage years have always been a season of angst. I mean, you think about Rebel mm-hmm. Without a Cause. That was I was just thinking about of that a book. Teenager. Yeah. Yes, exactly. So the teens have always been a, a tumultuous time. But you're right, Gen Z is facing challenges that we just never faced before. They have an avalanche of new challenges. And I think one of the biggest influences is that they are just overwhelmed with information. You know, we, when we were growing up, just had a few trusted sources of information. So if you had a problem, you could go there. But teens are receiving information at the speed of light. They're also connected to the world in a way that no other generation was connected, which can be good, but it can also be bad because we're hearing about every major tragedy happening all over the world. These awful stories that are coming in just at at a speed that's just not sustainable for us to to have. Um, Teens can get easily pulled into online communities where they're talking about people who are experiencing things. They're very distressed by social justice issues, by issues of gender identity. Um, they're, and they see they're very disconnected. Even though they're connected in a digital way, they're deeply disconnected from meaningful relationships. And this is where we can use our old school wisdom with our teens' fresh world perspective. And I think that, you know, all of those things are just, it's a perfect storm. It's not just one thing that has led us to this point of crisis. It is uh, it, it is a perfect storm of events. And I can't help but wonder what role social media in general plays in all these different stats. Uh, it's just a, a very different thing. It's, it's global. I mean, it's, it's as much in Munich as it is in California or, or mm-hmm. Texas. And uh, when you see people who are just glued to their cell phones... Yes. They're walking down the street. They're not even looking where they're going. You know, they just yeah. they're just wandering, meandering down the sidewalk, looking at their phones. Um, and um, you know very well. I have I have a friend here in in Germany who's a professor of psychiatry. He talks about the studies he's done on the brain, uh, all the way up from small children to to twenty year olds, and talks about the damage that these these uh, digital things produce in terms Mm -hmm. of being able to learn and being able to face life. And Mm -hmm. uh, he had some very shocking things to say about it. It's, uh, I don't know if it's in English or not, but it's called the digital dementia. (laughs) That's Uh his, and it's, it's very um, terrible that what has happened to our young people in this last generation or two. It, It is. I agree. And you know, 
think it's important to say that social media in and of itself is not a bad thing, just like a car is not a bad thing. Mm -hmm. But you wouldn't toss the keys to a 12-year-old and say, hey, okay, here, go, you know, just be careful. And I think that we do not adequately prepare kids for social media exposure. Their character is underdeveloped for the overexposure that happens Mm -hmm. on social media. And I think that really, this is kind of an unpopular opinion, but one of the biggest things we need to do as parents is to look at our own social media use, because that is the number one predictor of healthy teen behaviors, healthy child behaviors, is the Mm -hmm. parent having those behaviors. And I think sometimes we can take a hypocritical stance on our own online activities thinking, you know, justifying them that their work or we're talking to grownups or, you know, get off of your phone while parents are in their phone. I mean, how many times have I been at a school event or a kid's sporting event where parents' heads, all you see is the top of their head engaged in their phone and they're more engaged in their online life than the real life that's happening before them. So I want to say two important things about teen brain development. First, for social media, it is very real that when teens get affirmation from social media, it causes a surge of feel-good chemicals in your brain. And teen brains are very um, neuroplastic, meaning that they absorb and respond very sensitively to the stimulus that is put into them. Mm -hmm. And so they're trained to want that dopamine hit and it becomes deeply entrenched in their brain. And that's how they're getting positive feedback. And Social media is a beast in the way that it can be good, but it can be very bad and things can turn very negative very quickly. And those pathways are just as damaging. And, uh, you know, and the other thing about um, teen brain development is that we know that we can change it if we, if we intervene early. And so that is really important. And we know that if parents are not connected, if we're more engaged in our phone, and we don't have eye contact, eye contact, and actually what I call listening with your face, that releases feel-good chemicals as well. And it creates oxytocin, which is a bonding chemical between people. And it bonds people when you have eye contact. And so when parents don't have that, then teens feel more disconnected. And they can be, you know, engaging online, but they can be deeply fearful to have in-person interactions. And that's where we as parents really need to teach them to value that and to train their brain to respond in a positive way to those in-person interactions. How would you lay out a, um, a brief summary plan for parents who are facing exactly what you've been talking about? What do you, where do you start and what do you do? What I would start with is to create family norms for social media, rules that everyone adheres to, that no one is special. So I'll give you an example of what that looks like in my family. We have designated tech-free zones. There are never any phones at the table. It doesn't matter if it's work or anything like that. Nobody uses their phone when we're having dinner together. Mm -hmm. We also have a tech-free zone in the bedroom. No one takes their phone into their bedroom. Bedrooms are for rest. And we know that, uh, you know, for teens, there's a lot that goes on to that. But you wouldn't invite 2,000 strangers into your teen's bedroom. But that's what we do with social media. Mm -hmm. So we create tech-free zones. We create tech-free times. And we create the permission to call each other out when we are fubbing each other or phone snubbing each other. There's a lot of research about that. Um, Our other tech-free zone is in the car because that's a time when we can really have time to talk. 
But really, a lot of parents will focus on screen time. So the second thing I would say, in addition to creating tech-free zones and tech-free time, is to um, not focus on screen time because that's so punitive. It's so you only have two hours. And then the teen's focus is to fill up that time. But if you simply provide alternative activities together that are more compelling, that is going to get your teen off the phone. So ask them to go for a walk. Start making cookies in the kitchen. Get out a board game. You know, turn on a family movie together. And they may not come at first, but the more that you do that, then the more that they will engage. And I think those are the easiest two starting points in addition to just really looking at your own use and seeing what kind of hypocritical behaviors are you demonstrating to your teen. And I know I'm guilty of that just just along with every other parent. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I understand that. Um, so you're you're saying model what you want them to do and say. I mean, yeah. do live, and uh, then you don't force it on them, but you slowly draw them into a different kind of family experience. Does that yes. sound right? Yeah. Okay. And they they go along with it. I mean, most of them are willing most of the time to do what you've recommended? Yes, it's all about relationship building. So parenting teens is for the long game. And in this age of instant gratification, sometimes if we're honest as parents, we treat parenting like growing a chia pet. (laughs) We want to just put in a little bit of effort and have instant growth. And that's Mm -hmm. not how it happens. It's more like growing a pineapple. You may put that seed in the soil and water it and put it by the sun, but you don't see anything for two years. And so you have to release your teens from the pressure of that immediate gratification. If you say we're going to go on a family walk, you can't expect them to say, oh, that's so wonderful and lovely. You know, I I can't wait to have a deep conversation with you. No, they'll probably roll their eyes and not want to go. But as you listen more and engage them and to say, what would you like to do together as a family or going to serve somewhere together, spending time together, that's what teens want most. They want our time and our authenticity. And so many times I hear teens saying that they just want their parents to listen to them. So if you just listen, then you'll find yourself in a different place if you're patient over time. I've heard that for years, that um, I'm thinking maybe 20, 25 years ago, I heard people say that that teens' number one issue is to get their parents' attention, to have yeah. them listen to them, spend time with them. And uh, it, it seems so clear and simple, doesn't it? I mean, if we would just do that. Um, would be the beginning of a transformation in the family. I completely agree. And it's just when parents, you know, when parents initiate, a lot of times they experience rejection or their teen will lash out or it's just, we really can't take that personally. We just have to recognize that they don't feel comfortable in their own bodies. You know, we all went through Mm -hmm. puberty and changing and that's just such an awkward, difficult time for everyone. And teens need their parents to see them, they see themselves through our lens. And so sometimes as parents, when we have a kid who's struggling with being lazy, for example, it's much different for us to say, you're so lazy. Why do you always you know, do this? Or why do you mm-hmm. never do this? Instead of saying something like, hey, I see that you're struggling to get the things done that you need to do in a timely manner. How can I support you in this? And seeing them be not generalizing that one struggle to the totality of their character is so important. That's good stuff. Um, I was looking at this, um, some of these stats again. Depression 
anxiety, hopelessness, and suicide rates. Um, I know it's hard to uh, to nail down causes for this sort of thing, but mm-hmm. uh, what about correlations? Do you see correlations for, for example, this the rise in suicide rates? Is there anything mm-hmm. that uh, looks like a common feature here? The, actually, the most common feature that we see in suicide is, is teens not talking to anybody about it and keeping all of that inside. And there are a lot of different factors that can lead to that, um, that, that can cause stress in a teen's life, that, that can, including mental health conditions that are related to the way that your brain works or genetics or any of the other issues that I talk about in Behind Closed Doors. But really, the main thing that we see is just that disconnect, disconnection. Only one in three teens who have suicidal thoughts will tell anyone about it. Really? Suicide is usually a very impulsive decision. Um, 25% of teens will decide within five minutes and then um, try to take their own life. And they just that's because teen brains are impulsive. They are mm-hmm. impulsive in their actions and their thoughts. Yeah. And they haven't talked to anyone because they just feel so isolated. So that's why it's important for parents to open the door to conversation. A lot of parents are scared to talk about things like suicide or mental health, and they may think they don't want to give their kid ideas or sound accusatory or expose them to something that they haven't been exposed to. But if you intentionally expose them in a developmentally appropriate way, you're positioning yourself as the expert and you're signaling to them that that door is open and they can come back and talk. I've had that experience many times with my kids where we'll have a very awkward conversation about a subject. Maybe I'm always looking for cues, you know, something that happens in their peer group or something we see on the news or something we see in a movie and I'll initiate that conversation. And I may not get anything back that that at all. Um, I'll give you a specific example. I had talked to my children about pornography. And when my daughter was in the fifth grade, she came to me and she said, um, And basically all I had told her was some people may show you some things on an electronic screen that make you uncomfortable and that give you a feeling like it's wrong and you may not know what it is. But if that happens, I want you to come to me. And this girl in in her fifth grade class had told her about a, a video she had seen on YouTube and she came right to me and she said, do you remember that conversation we had? And of course I did. And she said, I think that happened today. And we were able to intervene very early and I was able to call the other girl's parent, and we were able to stop that before any harm continued. Sometimes when teens experience something that they don't really know what it is, they feel shame, but they don't know why. And they need to know that we're going to love them and find grace and that we're not going to respond from a place of anger, even though there may be consequences depending on the, on the behavior. I think I'll change gears a little bit here. I want to ask you a little bit about nursing. Uh, in general, uh, you're you're sure. the top of the top of the line for nursing uh, professionals. Um, what? How do you see changes in the nursing profession since you started? Do you see things happening <laughs> there that you didn't expect or that surprised you? Absolutely, I, I love talking about nursing. Um, nursing has, in some ways, has changed so much since I started as a nurse 25 years ago, and in other ways, it hasn't changed at all. What has not changed is that nursing remains the most trusted profession. In poll after poll, worldwide, people trust nurses more than any other profession. And that is a 
privilege that we safeguard as a profession very vigilantly. We want to make sure that nurses are someone you can come to at your deepest point of need in your most vulnerable moment and know that you're going to get compassionate, skilled care. Mm-hmm. So that that is something that hasn't changed and that I'm very proud of. One thing that has changed is respecting the voice of nursing. And, you know, we do give care in the hospital and we will, you know, change your bandages and start your IV. But nurses are skilled clinicians. We are scholarly practitioners of care and we have a voice and, uh, and we are in the trenches. We see what is there. But a lot of times, you know, in upper um, leadership forums, there is a lack of nursing voice. We saw this in the American response to COVID. There was no nurse on the COVID task force, and we don't have nurses who are helping to make the decision. But I see that changing. I see more nurses at the forefront and and leading with their skill set. We've had experiences in our own family where it was the nurses, not the doctors, who diagnosed us more accurately. Um, I don't know why that is, and I, I don't mean to downgrade doctors. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're, they're hardworking and, they, and all the rest of it, but uh, we have come to trust the voice of a nurse, generally speaking, uh, more than the, the doctor's voices. I think one of the, one of the reasons that people uh, really gravitate toward nurses is that we really care about you as an entire person. Whereas physicians are trained to look at the body as a disease process that needs to be healed, which if you are having a heart attack or you need brain surgery, you absolutely want that mindset. But as a nurse, I care about all of the things that impact your health. So that goes back to, you know, where I'm working as a nurse. It's not like someone comes into my clinic and says, you know, I have a headache and I'm not sleeping. I think I might be depressed. Will you check me out? They come in and they say, I have a headache. I'm not sleeping. Maybe I have the flu. Maybe I have mono. And then we're able to see that as as a holistic person and recognize depression hurts. Anxiety hijacks your emotions, Um, your mental health, your social health, your academic health. all, All of those things impact your physical health. And so we, and we also really care about prevention. We want to help you and empower you to live your healthiest life so that you don't need those interventions that come down the road. Mm -hmm. And that's one thing that I see, you know, being more valued in nursing, especially in the wake of COVID and the teen mental health crisis is let's act early. Let's meet you where you are and help support you to, uh, to be your healthiest self. So it sounds like there's a pastoral role there. With nurses, that <laughs> may not get, in other words, yeah. So you're 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 pastors, you're medical pastors. Is I that... actually love that. That really <laughs> resonates with me. Yes, I I definitely have walked in those shoes. I would take that title for sure. Okay, well, would would you recommend to people who are thinking about it that this is a career to go into today? Yes, absolutely. Nursing is the most tenacious, resilient courageous and innovative profession, I believe, that has ever graced the face of the earth. Now, the reality facing nursing is that we're very tired and there's a lot yeah. of burnout and it is difficult to uh, to see your patients really sick and see your patients die and to have your voice diminished in the public square, to know that you have something to give, but, you know, have that not really listened to, that can be discouraging. But 
uh, even with all of that, a nurse, I'll tell you my second daughter, who is a senior in high school, just applied to college as a nursing major. And I could not be more proud to see her go into that profession. And it is a life-giving profession. It is a privilege to meet people um, behind closed doors at a great point of need and to be able to have mm-hmm. their trust and give them comfort in a moment that they are deeply in need of. There is just there's nothing more fulfilling than that. So there's a high satisfaction level uh, having served as a nurse for a lifetime, you would say. You know, I still, I, even in my community, there is a mom I encountered 21 years ago when her baby was a newborn and she was just at a very low place and I met her where she was. And to this day, if I see her in the grocery store or the community park, she will announce to anyone listening, that is the woman who saved my life. And she will come over and oh, give me a great. hug. Yeah, and wow. so, you know, I see it's, it is, it is extremely fulfilling. Yeah. That's to know the payoff that. right there, isn't it? Yes. Well, uh, let me ask you this. What's next for you? What's, um, what's your next project? Well, my, my next project is really just this book. Um, I'm hoping that this is going to be a very sustained effort in, bringing this uh, in, on board with with uh, being a partnership to my anti-trafficking efforts, which I work all over the world to help stop human trafficking. Mm-hmm. And so I will continue to do that. But I really want this book and this journey with parents to have very long legs. And I want to dive in deeper to engaging, equipping, encouraging, and empowering parents to build healthy relationships with their teens so that we can make a difference in some of the crises that this generation is facing and that we can have hope for tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I, I hope and I think that your book is going to be a success uh, because the need is so great. The problem is so ubiquitous uh, and serious. Um, I think it's going to be a success, and I'll pray to that effect. And I'll do what I can to uh, spread the word that this is the book to get. If you have teens, I appreciate that so much, John. And this is, you know, this I tried to make this very practical, hands-on, you know, application, not just something that you read and that informs you, but practical tools that mm-hmm. can really move the needle and make a difference in families. Yeah. Well, this is wonderful. Uh, I want to thank you for uh, for everything you've done. Thank you for this book and for what you're doing with your life. And thank you for the time you've given to this uh, this podcast. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you so much for having me. And thank you for all that you are doing uh, to walk alongside people who are just looking for hope and encouragement. And I really appreciate the honor and the, uh, of being able to visit with your listeners. You've been listening to Dr. Jessica Peck explaining today's urgent need for guidance and help for parents and teens. We highly recommend her book, Behind Closed Doors, and her podcast, Dr. Nurse Mama. Thanks for visiting us today. Please watch for the great list of outstanding Christians on the front lines of life's critical issues.